0: First Peter chapter number 3, verse number 1. The Word of God says, Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the Word, they also may without the Word be won by the conversation of the wives. While they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek, and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that you are thereunto called that you should inherit a blessing. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. Lord, I pray that your word would breathe life into us this morning. We know, Father, that those of us that are born again, We already have new life in us. But Father, our actions, our lives, our home, our behavior, our 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 soul, our mind, we just crave the life-giving power of the Word of God today. I pray that the Word would be engrafted into our souls and spirits and minds. And Lord, that these truths would take root in us downward and bear fruit through us upward, that You might receive much glory. Lord, we commit everything about these next few moments unto You. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Peter chapter number 3, we have what is one of a handful of key marriage passages in the Word of God. Often when you preach a wedding or often when you sit down to do premarital counseling or marital counseling, uh, you'll go to these passages. Oftentimes we'll go to Genesis chapter number 2 and talk about how God created man and gave him a helpmeet. There's a lot of wisdom and truth there. You know, God looked at all that He created, and every time He looked at it, He said it was either good or it was very good. And then He looked at Adam by Himself, and the first time God ever said anything negative about anything in Scripture, He looked at Adam, and He saw him without a helpmate, and He said, that's not good. We've got to do something about this situation. When Adam named all the animals, it's interesting, it says he named them after their kind, both male and female. It's like they were parading through and he was looking at them and saying, well, there's that one and there's one just like it. And there's that one and there's one just like it. But the Bible says there was no, no mate, no helpmate uh, and helpmate found for Adam. It was like he got to the end of it and he looked around and said, but I don't see nobody like me. And God looked at the situation. By the way, God knew what Adam needed before Adam ever knew it. God says first, God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for him to be alone. It's not good for him to not have a helpmate. He can't handle this on his own. He needs somebody to come alongside to be a helper to shore him up. And then later on, Adam's naming the animals. And he says, hey, I've not found a mate. I've not found anybody for me. God knows what we need before we know what we need. And God looks at it and says, that's not good. He needs something. And the Bible says that He created a helpmeet for Adam. That's not a derogatory term. I fear that in today's society, we've made that term helpmeet a derogatory term. You know that there are times when that same word is used to describe God. And it means someone that comes along beside and helps and shores up and holds up. God looked at His creation. Let me say this, ladies. I ain't trying to get no offerings, so calm down. Ladies, God looked at His creation, saw that you weren't there, and said, this ain't good. We need somebody, a helpmeet for Adam. God had given him a charge and a task and a calling, and He said He cannot do it on His own. You could go to Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 and talk about what Paul says about the home, and it's very much in line with what Peter says here, that uh, husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loves the church. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. said that no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it and said that we as husbands ought to love our wives as ourselves and we ought to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And there's great wisdom there and it talks about the harmony in the home. In 1 Peter chapter number 3, Peter gives a, a very practical Perspective on the home. Peter was a practical guy. He was a fisherman. He was not a theologian. He was not an academic like Paul was. He was a fisherman. And he gives marriage advice exactly like a fisherman would. He gives this practical advice. In the first six verses, he focuses on the responsibility of women in the home. And let me say this. In those first six verses, there's not a thing that a Bible-believing Christian ought to be scared of or ashamed of. Every bit of it is exactly like it ought to be, and how God said it. And again, there's this attitude. Postmodernist feminism has has uh, cast aspersions and and cynicism on the role of women in the home, to a great disservice to men and women alike, and to the biblical home. Hey, listen, you understand, ladies, how much power that you have. Peter says here, if you've got a husband that's unbelieving, even without the word, he can be won just by your testimony. That's a powerful thing. But I want to spend a few moments this morning preaching on Peter's advice to husbands. And it doesn't just reflect, I believe, the responsibility of husbands. Now, I want you to follow this line of thinking for a moment. If husbands are supposed to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and the husband is the head of the home as Christ is the head of the church... As Christians, it's true that Christ is the head of the church. It's also true that we are to endeavor. We have our role and our responsibility subservient to Christ, but it is also true that we are called to imitate and replicate the life of Christ. Therefore, we have a role and a place. We ought not be Christ. We cannot be Christ. But we can look at Christ and say, that's what proper behavior looks like. And I think if we look at Peter's advice to husbands and His command to husbands, we find some truths that stretch across the different roles and that apply to everyone, husband and wife alike. And by the way, there's even some wisdom here for children. There's some wisdom in relationships that we have between friends about how we interact in life. Marriage is the deepest and most intimate form of companionship aside from the relationship between a person and Christ. Therefore, everything that we can say about marriage, we can, to some lesser degree, say about our relationships with other people. So there's wisdom all through this. And I want, if I can this morning, to give you six keys to a happy marriage. Practical truths that if you and I will implement in our home, actively pursue and try to place at the centerpiece of our activity and behavior in the home, I think we'll find that we have happier marriages. Let me tell you something. We live in a time now where the divorce rate is well above half. And I realize there's some folks in there that skew the statistics, but uh, the fact is the home is not in good shape, historically speaking, in the historical context. And even the homes that are still together, so many of them are so fractured that they're not functioning the way that God intended. Let me just say it this way. There's a lot of folks just barely hanging on. And I believe we need these six keys. Now I want you to notice them with me. They're found beginning in verse number 7. Now again, Peter's writing this to husbands, but there's wisdom in here that should inform the behavior of wives as well. And I want you to notice them with me. He says in verse 7, likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge. This was one of the first pieces of uh, premarital counseling that my pastor gave me before I got married. My, I, I was the last... Uh, me and my wife were the last couple that our pastor ever presided over our wedding ceremony. Uh, and he was, I don't know, like 600 years old by then. And he had been married like 540 of those years. And uh, he had a lot of wisdom. And one of the wisest things he ever told me, in fact, I found this, that most of the time... Wisdom is a slow time getting into the station. A lot of times people give you wisdom, it takes years for you to really understand it. And when he told me this, I don't think I even understood it. But he looked at me and he said, Son, dwell with her according to knowledge. Let me just say this, 90% of the problems that we have in our marriages, we know are going to be a problem before we ever take steps in the direction of causing the problem. You know why it is, men, that when you ask your wife what's wrong, she don't want to tell you? Because she assumes you probably already know. The fact is, most of the time, if you stop and slowed down and thought about it, you probably would. And most of the problems that we have in our marriages are not great mysteries of life. We oftentimes try to to cast them as though this is just some unthinkable thing. Don't know what went wrong, don't know how that happened, but just here we are as though this problem materialized out of nowhere. But most of the time, if we'll slow down, look at it, think about it, talk about it, we'll recognize that we just simply weren't dwelling according to knowledge. Can I tell you what 90% of the... Marital counseling, I do not premarital, but marital counseling. Meaning, folks is having problems. They come to me and say, "Preacher, can we meet? We need to talk." You know what? Ninety percent of it is. It's just right here. It's sitting people down and saying, "All right, you tell me what the problem is." And they go through and they da oh, It's this and it's that and this and that and this and that. And I'll turn and I'll look at the other person, look at the spouse, and say, "Now tell me what they just said." And they'll look at me like a deer in headlights. And I'll say, all right, let's rewind this. And I'll look at the first one and say, all right, you, tell me all that again. And they'll tell it and I'll say, now, did you hear that? (laughs) And then oftentimes, I'll turn around and I'll look at that person and I'll say, now, you tell me what the problem is. And very often, they will describe an entirely different set of problems. And then I'll look at the first person and say, now, what'd they say? Just after it's happened, they'll look at me and say, I don't know. You know, the fact is, we've gotten into the habit of not listening to understand, but listening to respond. And oftentimes, when we're trying to talk through our problems, we're not trying to understand one another, we're merely trying to position and posture ourselves for the next attack or the next defense. And we should be no surprise, there should be no surprise to us that when we're talking two different languages about two different problems and we're not listening to each other in the first place, that we can't come to terms on anything. 90% 90% of it is just stopping and dwelling according to knowledge. Most of the time, if we'd be smart instead of stupid about our relationships, we'd save ourselves a lot of heartache. I jotted a few things down, because I figure you're probably mad at me by now. Can I share with you a couple of short, just primers, some just wisdom? These is some examples of some stuff I'm talking about. Let me give you a primer on women. Now, there's less that I understand about women, or there, there's more that I don't understand than there is that I do understand but I have learned a few things in almost 10 years of marriage. Let me give you a few of them. Number one, I don't know if men, if you know this, but there is a secret way to load the dishwasher. Indistinguishable to the male eye. You wouldn't even know it if you saw it. But it is passed down from mother to daughter and kept under the greatest secret. Women have a very real fear. Listen now, men, you need to understand what you're what your spouse is afraid of. Women have a very real fear that the menu at even the most familiar of restaurants has changed in the week since they've been there last. So when you pull up to the drive-thru or when you sit down at the table, yes, they will have to look at the menu. They do need a minute. They are going to have to look over every option. Now, men are not like this. Listen, I've had the menu of Taco Bell memorized since 2002. I, I can tell you not just what I'm going to get the next time, but, but the three times after that, but women are not that way. The condiments from a drive-thru are different on a molecular and spiritual level from the ones in your kitchen. So when you go through this drive-thru, and you say, they say to you, do you need any sauces? The answer will always be yes. Me and my wife do this all the time. We'll go through a drive-thru. She'll say, ask them for ketchup and salt. And I always respond the same way. I always say, we got ketchup and salt at home. And she always responds the same way. She says, it's not the same. I didn't know that, but in 10 years of marriage, I've learned it. Women appreciate and enjoy the dance of deciding on a restaurant. And that's the reason when you say, honey, what do you want to eat? And she says, I don't care. She doesn't mean I don't care. And you know she doesn't mean that. And that's the reason when you immediately start saying, well, what about this? She's going to say, no, I don't want that. And then you're going to say, well, why don't you just tell me what you want? She'll say, well, I don't know what I want. You decide. And then you'll say, well, all right, let's get this. And she'll say, no, I don't want that. She just loves it. She just enjoys it. If you ask her what's wrong and she says nothing and nothing more, you are probably in far more trouble than you initially thought. And 95% of the time, she truly does not expect you to fix it. It's not that she doesn't want you to. It's just she's seen you try to fix other things. She doesn't have a lot of confidence in you. Now here's the thing, how many of us have had I mean we, we say it tongue in cheek, we joke about it, but how many of us have had arguments, knock down drag outs over some of the silly things that we've just mentioned? Things that we knew ahead of time. But instead of dwelling according to knowledge, we played dumb and allowed a situation to get out of hand. Let me give you a primer on men. It's a lot shorter. <laughs> men need food. Men need company. Men need the house to be cold and men legitimately cannot see the thing right in front of them that they're looking for. It's Ladies, I know you don't believe it, but it's not a joke. We legitimately cannot find it. And you can get frustrated if you want, but we are not... Some of y'all need to be in the altar right now. We are not... We're not playing games. Listen, all the joking aside, here's the reality most of the time we know what's going to upset them. And either through sometimes childishness, spite, and sometimes simple carelessness, we just don't dwell according to knowledge. If we would stop and think about what we're doing and take into consideration, because that's really what we're talking about is considerateness. What is going to happen, the impact it's going to have on the other person, I think we'd have happier marriages. Let me give you a second thing. He says, dwell with them according to knowledge. And then he says this, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Now, let me say this. There's a lot of misnomers about biblical roles. But I want you to notice the overall tenor of what Peter's saying here. He does not look at the wife and say, guard your role because you're the weaker vessel. He does not look at the husband and say, protect your role because you're the head of the home. He instead looks at the husband and says, give honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Let me say this, number two, not only are we to be smart, but we're to be supportive of one another. Supportive of one another. And I mean on a deeper level than merely excusing the actions of the other person. I mean in in what we expect out of one another and the way we interact with each other, we need to be supportive. Let me give you a word about biblical roles real quick. Would that be all right? Because I know some folks hear this, and they don't like this verse, and they say, well, I'm not weaker. But let me frame it, I believe, in a biblical perspective. Biblical roles are not a commentary on intrinsic value or capacity, but rather on intended purpose and design. Let me give you an example of what I mean. A tumbler isn't necessarily better than a teacup. They each have a place, and they each have a purpose. There are some things you are not going to use a tumbler for, because it just ain't designed for it. And there are some things where a teacup won't get the job done. Because they're simply not designed for it. One is not more important than the other. One is not more valuable than the other. Or if it is, ladies, it's usually the teacup. But the fact is, each of them is designed to fill an important role. Remember, God looked at His creation and He said, This is not good. I need to create something to fill this need. You have been tailor-designed to complete man's life and sojourn on earth what you've been designed for. We know what the roles are. Husbands are called to lead and to love their wives. Wives are called to submit and support their husbands. By the way, can I just simply say this? This, is, this isn't part of my message, but I'm going to throw this in there. I've made you laugh too much. I've got to make you mad. Wives are never commanded to love their husbands. They're commanded to submit and support to their husbands. Now, I don't think it's because God doesn't desire for you to love your husband, but I think rather it's because the love that you feel on an emotive level for your husband is going to be produced by both your proper place in the home and his proper place in the home. In in other words, let let me say it this way. You ain't always going to feel like you're going to love your husband. If, if you pick up and walk off every time you don't feel like you love him, then you're going to pick up and walk off every time you have an argument, every time you have a fight. The fact of the matter is, men are a cold, pragmatic, wired creature. And women have been tailor-designed to balance that. And part of the result of that is they have been created to respond on a compassionate, nurturing, and emotional level. It's not hysterics. It can be, but it's not. It's merely the fact that you fit a function... That others don't fit, and this is part of the reason that biblical roles, genders are under attack by the devil the way that they are today. To me, there is nothing more empowering to, or, or, or nothing that is less empowering to women than to tell them they have no intrinsic value and nothing unique about them that they're nothing more than what they identify as. That to me is grossly offensive. The fact is, you are you are created in a unique way to fit a particular purpose, same way as men are. And you have a unique identity that is granted, given, and designed by God. You're not just a woman because you identify as your woman. You're a woman because God created you as a woman. And there are certain ways and functions that you have emotionally in the home that no one else could possibly do. So these biblical roles, when it says weaker, it's not talking about weaker as it relates to power, but weaker as it relates to position. The position that you have in the home is a more fragile and delicate position. And so the husband ought to respond by giving honor in that respect, not merely by bulldozing over. And that's what I want to really say about this. Let me give you a word about responsibility. He doesn't say to the husband, you protect your role as the leader of the home. He doesn't say to the wife you recline back on your subservient position in the home. Rather, he looks at the husband and says, your concern ought not be your role, your concern ought be her role. And he looks at the wife and says, your concern ought not be your role, your concern ought to be his role. I wrote it down this way. We should strive to uphold our spouse's role instead of uplifting our own. Let me give you another one. We should strive to enrich their role instead of entrenching ourselves in our role. You know, a lot of the reason we don't have harmony in the home is because we're selfish. And you got husbands sitting around and saying, I'm the head of this home and I'm going to make the decisions and no one's going to tell me otherwise. Would you want to follow somebody that led that way? And we got a lot of wives saying, hey, I don't have to listen to you. I don't owe you anything. I don't have any responsibilities to you. Would you find it easy to love someone like that? The only way this thing works is if we get our eyes off of entrenching ourselves in our position, defending our position, and instead look at enriching the responsibilities and roles of our spouse. Hey, listen, you want your wife to be more submissive? Lead her in a way where she can have confidence in you. Hey, listen, you want your husband to be more loving in his leadership of you? Show him that you're willing to be led in a biblical way. Focus on enriching their responsibility. And you'll find it will enrich your own and fortify both of them. We're to be supportive. Let me give you a third thing. Look at the next phrase. It says, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see the word grace in the Bible, I have a tendency to immediately think of a theological definition of grace. Grace. The theological definition of grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's unmerited favor. The fact that we as lost, uh, undone, wretched, depraved sinners have been allowed into the family of God by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the imputed righteousness and the supernatural justification that took place the moment that we believed on Him. That's the grace of God. But that's not what Peter says. And, And I would remind you of this, that just a few moments ago he was talking to wives that had husbands that were not believers. He's not talking about being heirs together of the grace of God. Now, if you're saved, you are an heir together of the grace of God with your spouse. But he says an heir together of the grace of life. If grace means goodness, blessing, benefit, enrichment, then what he's saying is the good things, the enjoyable things, the pleasurable things, the blessings of life. Can I just make a very simple statement to you and I'll move on? As husband and wife... And as a family, you must share the grief of life together. I'm getting ready to go here in a few moments and preach a graveside in between services today. I can't tell you how many gravesides I've preached in the short time I've pastored. You're going to listen as husband and wife are going to be at every funeral together. You're, you're, you're going to pray and worry over every bill together. You're going to weep and cry and, and, and beg God over your wayward children or grandchildren together. Every burden of life you're going to share together. So you better make sure you're also sharing the blessings of life. You're going to share every bit of the grief of life. So make sure you're also sharing the grace of life. Enjoy life together. Let me tell you something. You know part of the reason we don't have happy marriages? We give the worst of ourselves to each other. We give the worst of ourselves to each other. We go out and we give every ounce of who we are to the secular workplace, to our secular responsibilities, to the matters and business of life. Then we come home dog-tired, exhausted, frustrated, irritated, and collapse into each other and say, all right, here I am, how was your day? And then we wonder why we don't ever enjoy life together. Hey, listen, mate, I know it's hard, i got kids, but go the extra mile to have hobbies together, to have inside jokes with each other. Go the extra mile to to flirt, to play with each other, to pick at each other. Enjoy the good things of life. Because there's going to be enough grief to wreck your marriage if there's not enough grace injected in to balance it out. Be sharing with each other. Let me give you a fourth thing. Be spiritual. He says, do all this. Why? That your prayers be not hindered. So in other words, your relationship with one another has a direct effect on your relationship with God. And the converse is true. Your relationship with God is going to have a direct effect on your relationship with each other. You better be on praying ground. Because it takes prayer in this wicked world. Hey, listen. In the Old Testament, God put man in a perfect environment. And they still found a way to mess things up. What do you think walking through this wicked world is going to happen? If you're not guarding against and fighting for your home, be praying for one another. The impediment in our spiritual life can be our relationship with each other. It's hard to be right with God and wrong with each other. And I'm not saying there aren't some instances where that is the nature and case of it. There are times people go their own way, they make their own decision. Paul described a scenario in which an unbelieving spouse departs and says that the believing spouse is not under bondage in such a situation. I understand that. But in most normal functioning homes, that's not the case. It can get to that place, and oftentimes it gets to that place at the neglect of these truths. But in most situations, there are some situations like that. I can tell you uh, situations people have gone through. You could tell me situations people have gone through. But in normal functioning situations, it's hard to be wrong with each other and right with God. It's an impediment to our spiritual life, and he points to the importance of it. I've got two more things I'll hurry Look at verse number 8. He says, Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. Man, there's so much wisdom in this, but let me sum it up by saying this. Be sympathetic. Be sympathetic. Somehow, in the marriage relationship, we go from being two partners in a dance to being two opponents in a boxing ring. And we get to the place where the priority to us is winning instead of dwelling. Winning instead of intimacy and companionship and, and nourishing each other's emotional and spiritual needs. We get to the place where it's all about getting the upper hand. I'm going to tell you something. You can get the upper hand all you want, but if you want this thing to work, sometimes you're going to have to take the high road instead of the upper hand. He, he says a few things. Notice his first phrase. He says, finally be all of one mind. I find this to be interesting. There's a lot of wisdom and a lot of truth here, but one thought jumped out to me, which was this. This is an active calling, this thing of being sympathetic to each other. It's not passive. It's not automatic. And that's part of our... We live in an automatic world. Everything's automatic, so we expect our parenting to be automatic. We expect our marriage to be automatic. We expect our church life to be automatic. And the truth is, everything in life that is of value takes work, energy, and effort. It's not automatic. Hollywood has told you it's automatic, and it's told you if it's not automatic, it's just because you found the wrong one. If you find another one, it'll be automatic. That's a lie straight out of the pits of hell. The past marriages didn't start that way, they was built that way. They was worked on. They was created and crafted through careful diligence and hard work. And he says, be all of one mind. We, we could try, we don't have time to, we could try an interesting uh, exercise to illustrate this. If I was to pass out pieces of paper around the room, and if I was to give you ink pens, and I would say, everybody write down a number between one and a hundred, and we were to collect them, what do you think the chances are that every one of them would say the same number? Well now, let's stop and let's think about this. Let's say we did that, but I said, now, first though, I'm going to give you the opportunity to talk to each other. You did a little bit of talking, five minutes of talking. Well, probably it'd bust up into factions, cause a church split, start another church three miles down the road. But what you'd probably have is people would form in different groups. You'd have some folks say, seven's my favorite number, it's going to be number seven. Somebody else say, "Uh, well, you know, 30's my favorite number. and and, You know, whatever it would be, people would begin to form factions. But then if left to yourselves long enough, having to talk, having to communicate, having to compromise, sooner or later, if you both cared about the goal you would eventually come to a consensus. You know one of the first things I ask people when they want me to sit down and counsel with them? Oftentimes, I've had situations where one spouse will call me and say, Preacher, me and my spouse, we need counseling. The first question I ask them is, is your spouse on board? And if they say, well, I'm not sure, then I tell them I'm sorry. I'm happy to have, if it's a lady, I'm happy to have my wife counsel you. I, if it's a husband I'm, I'm, I say well I'm happy to sit and meet with you and try to give you spiritual counsel, but marital counseling, unless you're both interested in fixing it is almost an impossibility i don't say that to discourage you the prayers of God's people can do wondrous things uh, listen god God can but just speaking from a an emotional uh, academic counseling level, there has to be a desire on both parts to fix the thing. Two things kill most marital counseling. you ready? One is, people show up, but only one of them really shows up. The other one's drug along, but they don't really want to be there. The other problem is this. you got people that don't want you to fix their marriage, they want you to fix their spouse. Let me tell you everything they done wrong, and you tell them why I'm right, and we'll get them straightened out, and then the home will be okay. No, sir! If that's your attitude, listen now, if that's your attitude, it ain't no wonder you're having problems if you're looking at them instead of trying to look at yourself and saying, maybe there's something I could do, maybe I could help, maybe there's, maybe there's something I could try to change, then you won't last. You won't last. If we got all together and said, let's figure this thing out, after enough communication, after enough compromise, after enough concern over the end product, you could eventually be of one mind. But Hollywood has told you that if you're not of one mind all the time, then it must be because you all don't belong together. I, I, listen, that, that that doesn't even make sense on a basic... Even a child, were he not brainwashed by Hollywood propaganda, would not believe such an absurd notion. It's going to take work. It's going to take communication. It's going to take compromise. If you're going to be of one mind, it's an active calling. But then I would like for you to notice this. It's an active kindness that's needed. He says having compassion one another. Compassion means allowing yourself to be emotionally inconvenienced for the sake of someone else. Putting yourself in the feeling place that they are in, trying to understand and identify. He says, love is brethren. Don't ever forget, in the midst of, of the of the friction and noise of marital discord, don't ever forget that that person, if they know the Lord, is also a brother and sister in Christ. And you ought to seek to minister to their needs the same way you would any other church person. And then he says, be pitiful. Now, that don't mean pitiful like the way a man is when he's got the cold. It means full of pity. Don't always jump to, I told you so, or you're going to run out of people to quit telling so. Be pitiful. And then he says this, be courteous. Courteous, kind. We, most of us will talk to our spouse in a way we would never talk to a total stranger. We've lost all basic courteousness. And we don't know how to speak in kindness anymore. I'll give you one final thing and I'm done. Look at verse number 9. He says, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary wise, blessing. Knowing that you are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. find something interesting here, but I'd sum it up this way. Be selfless. You remember what the Bible says? Husbands, you remember what the Bible says? That husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. In that same chapter, it says Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. You know, part of the, you know part of the reason our society can't function anymore? Is because we're all interested in protecting our own rights and position. Everybody all over the place is saying, this is my right and no one can... We're making up rights because we're so entitled. Uh, we're, we're, we're telling women that they have the right to murder their child but their child has no rights because we feel like we've run out of rights to grant people because that's how we buy votes in this country. We have, we, we, we have created a society in which disenfranchisement, being marginalized, being a victim, carries the highest currency. The highest currency. And because of that, we've pushed aside any thought of selflessness. And instead, we've made it about how can I protect me and mine? And beyond that, you're cheered as a hero for it by most people in the media and on social media. Worst thing you can do is get on social media looking for people to offend you. You know why? Because you'll find them. You'll find somebody else done made the same mistakes you've made that will say, yes, sir, brother, that's how I would be. Oh, yes, sister, that's how you need to be. Listen, you need to get out of that book, get in this book where the engrafted Word will shine as a mirror in your face and show you when you've done something wrong. Be selfless. Selfless. Uh, you know what it's going to mean to be selfless? Notice the standard recommended. Not rendering evil for evil. That means you've received evil, but you're not going to give it back. Or railing for railing. You've received railing, but you're not going to give it back. What are you going to give back? contrary blessing. The default should always be to say... God will be my defense. I don't have to win every argument. I don't have to prove every point. I just have to be pleasing to the Lord, and I have to do what's going to help shore up and undergird my spouse. And because of that, instead, our default in this pugilistic society of keyboard warriors is to always fight back and tell them our thoughts and give them a piece of my mind. You know what I found? Most people that make a habit of giving a piece of their mind eventually run out. And most of us ain't got much to spare. You'd be a lot better off holding your tongue, keeping your mind where it belongs, and giving blessing instead of railing and evil. How do I do that, preacher? Well, I think there's a hint to it found here. He says, knowing that you are thereunto called, that you should inherit a blessing. I see the standard that is recommended here. Your default should always be to reply with blessing, not with cursing. Not with evil, not with railing. But how do you do it? He says you're called to, and he uses a very important word, inherit a blessing. Inherit a blessing. I find that fascinating. You know why? Because there's only one circumstance under which a person inherits something. There has to have been a death. An inheritance is inextricably linked to the idea of death. You know how you receive the blessing? I know You know how you give the blessing. You respond by blessing. But you say, preacher, I can only do that for so long. I can't keep doing it. How can I do that? When do I get my blessing? When you die to self. And when you find your value and worth in Christ being exalted. And when you say at the end of the day, this ain't about me. This is about the Lord. Glorifying Him. Obeying Him. When you make Him your everything, that's when you'll find the blessing. You know, when God first appeared to Abraham, He gave him a path, He gave him a plan, He gave him a promise. But when He shows up in chapter number 15, you know what He says to him? He, Abraham has dwelt now for uh, ten years in the land. He's increased in wealth. He's got all this stuff. And God responds to him and says, Abraham, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. That, by the way, is the chapter where Abraham puts his faith in the Lord and righteousness is imputed unto him. Once you realize... That he's all you need. And if you have Him, you have what you need. But preacher, they don't appreciate. No, but He does. But preacher, they don't see all the sacrifices that I... No, but He does. But preacher, they don't always repay and reciprocate the kindness. No, but He does. If you'll die to self and say, this ain't about me, then you'll find that God will honor, bless, and exalt you and will always repay what you've done in His name and for His sake. I think if we'll load our key ring up with these six keys, we'll find it unlocks a lot happier marriage for us. A lot happier marriage. Be smart. Dwell according to knowledge. Be supportive. Don't spend all your time trying to prove how that... If you're the husband, don't spend all your time trying to prove that you're the boss. If you're the wife, don't spend all your time trying to prove what an idiot they are in their leading. Instead, try to enrich their position. Instead of entrenching yourself in yours, be sharing. Don't forget to laugh with your spouse. Don't forget to enjoy life. It's easy to forget that in this ugly, cruel world. Be spiritual. You need to walk with God in order to to walk with your spouse the right way, and you need to walk with your spouse the right way if you can, if they'll allow it, in order to walk with God in the right way. Be sympathetic. Don't always be ready to rear back. Instead, try to understand maybe where they're coming from and be selfless. You ain't got to win all the battles. The Lord's won your won your battles. Instead, you just commit yourself unto Him and respond in the way that God expects. And God, God, the God that's never broken a promise, has promised you'll receive a blessing for doing it. Let's